You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 314. Hi, I'm Jeff Goins, author of The Art of Work. And I'm glad you're here because you're about to enjoy a great conversation with another successful and inspiring author. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. When you have a curious organization, people will see actually failures, not as costly mistakes, but as opportunities for learning. We have to cultivate that. So that's the first one. The second is insisting that data trumps opinions. And that, that is so, so difficult. Hey there, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. It's the podcast that's dedicated to your personal and professional growth. I am your host. My name is Jeff Brown. And I'm here because I believe that if you want to achieve true success in your business, business and in your life, that intentional and consistent reading is an absolute must. Now, I've designed this podcast to help you narrow this reading list and bring you key insights and valuable ideas from some of today's most successful and inspiring authors. Each week, we're joined by one of these authors to chat about their latest book and their unique insights on things like personal growth, productivity, career, business, marketing, sales, entrepreneurship, and much more. In just a few minutes, we're going to be joined by Stephen H. Tomkey. He's author of the brand new book, Experimentation Works, The Surprising Power of Business Experiments. I'll ask Stephen to share about why intuition, experience, and even data are not enough when it comes to making important business decisions, the initial steps you need to take to make the transition to an experimentation mindset, how to craft a culture of experimentation, and lots more. You know, one advantage you have over a lot of people who maybe find they've got more time on their hands than usual right now is you've already developed the practice of reading intentionally and consistently. A book and author I'd love to recommend, in case you haven't checked him out, is a guy by the name of Dan Miller. In fact, he's author of numerous books, including New York Times bestsellers, and he was the first ever guest on the Read to Lead podcast nearly seven years ago when we chatted about his book, 48 Days to the Work You Love. I mentioned that book in particular in case your downtime has led to some introspection and in case you think you might be up for a change in career anytime soon. It's a great place to start. Again, it's called 48 Days to the Work You Love by Dan Miller. Stephen H. Tomkey, a leading authority on the management of innovation, is the William Barclay Harding Professor of Business Administration at Harvard Business School. He is also the author of the book Experimentation Matters, Unlocking the Potential of New Technology for Innovation, released back in Oh, it seems like an eternity ago now, 2003, <laughs> as well as over 100 articles, case studies and notes and books and journals such as Harvard Business Review, Management Science and MIT Sloan Management Review. He has taught in and chaired numerous executive education programs, both at Harvard Business School and in companies around the world. He's also a frequent conference speaker and advisor to global business leaders. They need his advice today, probably more than ever. Uh, his newest book is called Experimentation Works, The Surprising Power of Business 
experiments. Stefan, welcome officially to the Read to Lean podcast. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Well, I want to start with this this premise. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, uh, before we end this conversation, I do want to, to, to dive in and ask you about sort of uh, current events and, and, and how this relates to things going on today. But I want to Please start do. by asking you to speak to this premise you set forth in the introduction of the book, this idea of an organization with an experimentation ethos. I think uh, to most managers, um, intuition and experience and, and, and big data are enough. But you say that those things alone will not work. Yes, they're not enough for a, for a very simple reason, and mm. that is we do get it wrong most of the times. <laughs> in fact, uh, uh, the, the data is quite clear on that. Uh, and I've looked at this, uh, especially in online contexts. Uh, it turns out that uh, even the companies that are really good at this, uh, the companies that do a lot of, run a lot of experiments, mm. they get it wrong about eight to nine out of ten times. Uh, that's just a simple truth. And so uh, so when we do get it wrong most of the time, so how do we find out that we get it wrong? Well, we need to run the experiment because the, the risk, Jeff, that you face is that if you just act on experience and intuition alone is that you may take an idea and sort of run it all the way to, to market, you know, launch a product or service or whatever. And then you do find it out, do find out that it's wrong because, I mean, there is eventually there, there will be a big test. And that is when you uh, try to sell something to your customers. And that's a really expensive way to find out. Uh, it certainly is. There were some quotes you had early in the book, Steve Ballmer, with a quote regarding uh, the iPhone and just he, reading that quote today about how wrong it was. There was even a quote from Steve Jobs. I can't remember now what that quote was in reference to, but just seeing these otherwise very smart people making these predictions that were just so so off base is is, is sobering uh, for sure. So 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 why does experimentation work? What are what are some real world examples that you've seen of this, Stefan? This way of running a business, this constant sort of experimentation, iterative process, etc. Well, first of all, let me give you an example from Microsoft. So Microsoft, uh, as you know, has its Bing search engine, and an employee comes up with a simple idea. You know, the idea is to uh, move sort of uh, some of the text that's in the subtext, move it up to the headline, and proposes this to uh, to his manager. And you know, they, and they're getting a lot of ideas like this, and nobody really thought much of it. Mm-hmm. And the idea kind of languished, you know, for I think around six months or so. And it will only take a few days to actually make the changes. Then the employee got impatient and said, let's just run the test. (laughs) And uh, so the test is run and uh, suddenly an alarm goes off. And uh, so Microsoft monitors many KPIs. One of the KPIs is sort of sets of an alarm. They call it the do good to be true alarm. (laughs) And, uh, And this usually what happens is when you see a really sort of unusual change in that KPI. And usually what they do then is they stop the test or they stop the launch. And most of the times when this alarm goes off, there is a coding error, like some sort of a software error. And they're looking sort of at the code and they're figuring out that uh, that there's nothing there. They run it again and the experiment replicates. To make a long story short, is that single change resulted in an increase in revenue by an astonishing 12%, which translated into more than $100 million in the United States alone for that one year. And uh, the same amount for all the subsequent years. So why am I raising this? Well, this is, of course, a huge upside in revenue. Now, if the employee couldn't run the test, they would have never known. They would have never known Mm -hmm. that they're leaving all this money on the table. 
And if they followed their intuition, they probably would have never tested this. So this is what the power of experiments is all about. The ability to run these kinds of tests and not just showing what works and what doesn't work, what's wrong, but also the ability to realize, to, to find these opportunities that are hidden, these treasures that are hidden in most organizations. Well, more and more, I think companies are learning to more consistently interact with their customers online and, and conducting experiments there. What are some ways this helps businesses conduct experiments more cheaply than in the past? Well, in the online world, of course, this is done a lot, and especially by some of the big players. I mm. mean, you name them, you know, whether Amazon, Microsoft, Netflix, LinkedIn, uh, Booking.com, and so on. There's about a dozen or so companies that run tens of thousands of these experiments annually mm. on you and me, Jeff. <laughs> and, uh, and that's their way of finding out what works and what doesn't work. And so the fact that they're getting it wrong, you know, eight to nine out of 10 times is not a big problem for them because if you're running 10,000 tests a year, so what if you get 9,000 wrong? You still have a thousand that works and the tests or the experiments are very rigorous. And that is um, at the end, you can actually link cause and effect. You know which change causes sort of what to happen. And so that's really, really powerful. But it's not just in the uh, online world. You know, companies in the brick and mortar world are using this as well. What, what would be some examples of some companies that are doing that successfully? I'll give you an example from Kohl's. You know, we all know Kohl's, the large retailer. And uh, Kohl's, uh, uh, several years ago, did an interesting analysis. So, so someone made a suggestion to open the stores an hour late from Monday through Saturday. Mm. And, you know, they went through the numbers and they figured out that they could actually save a lot of money because it's an easy calculation to do. Any first year MBA can do that. And the problem, of course, was not the cost. The problem was, you know, executives had to then sort of think about what would actually happen to revenue if stores suddenly open an hour later. And how do you get the result? Well, in the past, we would have to just take a leap of faith and just open <laughs> the stores an hour late and then hope that the revenue wouldn't fall. <laughs> And of course, they didn't do that because they had an experimentation capability. So they ran the experiment and uh, it involved about 100 sort of of the company stores. It's a very rigorous experiment. And when they ran sort of the experiment, they did learn that uh, the change would have a negligible impact on sales. And so that then gave them the confidence mm. to be bold and to make the change. Uh, without the test, it would have literally been a leap of faith. <laughs> <laughs> now, you mentioned companies a moment ago that run thousands of experiments a year. Yes. You know, we see examples like Google or Amazon who do that, for example. But I think we forget sometimes those of us who aren't <laughs> Googles and Amazons of the world that it took them a while to get where they are. For a business that's ready uh, to go full steam ahead on this, what, what might be some of the first steps they need to think about? Businesses need to go through various stages, and you're absolutely right. You know, they all started out small. Mm. 
At the time, by the way, there were not a lot of tools around, so they had to build their own tools. They had to build their own infrastructure to run these kinds of experiments. Uh, but I tell businesses, all businesses, really to get going on this because this is about competitiveness. And so businesses go through a set of stages. You know, in my book, I explain in detail what these stages are. Uh, there are five stages that mm. I've observed. I, I gave them letters, Jeff, A, B, C, D, E. Easy to remember, mm. you know, awareness, belief, commitment, diffusion, and embeddedness and each of those stages describes a different almost state of mind in terms of uh, different resources different infrastructures different ways of organizing and businesses have to work their way through these stages so this is not something that you're going to do overnight you can't just say you know from you know next month on we're going to run a thousand or ten thousand experiments <laughs> it's not going to happen but you got to get started because uh, you got to get on that journey well it, it, with that in mind what then would be Stefan, some of the elements of a good business experiment? What do we need to think about in that regard? Well, Jeff, it makes sense to maybe take a step back and think about what an experiment is anyway. Mm. You know, often the word experiment is used in a very casual way, sort of in the English language. You know, when I say I experiment, uh, I mean I'm trying something. Or (laughs) sometimes in companies what I see, they try something and it didn't work and therefore it must have been an experiment. (laughs) That's not really what I'm talking about. (laughs) I'm talking about a, a discipline and a rigorous sort of way of experimenting following principles of the scientific method. And so here's what an ideal experiment is, and then we can relax, you know, some of these things. But in an ideal experiment, you have a tester like you and me, and uh, the tester sort of separates what we call an independent variable. So that's the presumed cost. For example, that would be a sales incentive. Or so if I want to, you know, find the relationship between a sales incentive and the revenue that salespeople generate. And I want to separate sort of that independent variable, the cost, from a dependent variable, which is the observed effect, which would be revenue, while holding all other potential causes constant. And that's an important point here because, you know, the revenue of a salesperson is affected by many things, you know, including an incentive uh, to, to, to make the numbers. But I want to hold all other potential causes constant because they will, in some ways, pollute the experiment because mm. that's not what I'm interested in. Now, in the real world, I can't really do that. <laughs> Because, you know, I mean, the, the the weather may change things. You know, if I'm a car salesperson, it could be that uh, they're feeling ill one day. I mean, there are lots of things going on all the time. Mm. So what we do in an experiment is we randomize, which is really, really important. And the reason why we randomize is that what we're saying is we're taking all these other variables that are changing all the time. And we're just evenly distributing them across basically sort of both sort of uh, the trials themselves, the, the subjects. So no individual variable can actually sort of bias the outcome of the experiment. And so so that's an ideal one. And randomization kind of helps. So essentially, we're simulating in some ways, holding all other potential causes constant here. Now, what does this all mean, right? That means that running a controlled experiment or disciplined experiment requires skill. You need to think through sort of a set of different variables, a set of different things that you need to pay attention to, things like reliability, for example. How do you make sort of a test reliable and so on? And so we need to train people in how to do these sorts of things. We need to have the right set of tools to do this. And we need to do lots of it. It's important to, to appreciate context here too, right? I, I was um, 
intrigued by the story you share of the Apple executive early in the book who then went to JCPenney and tried to apply some things that worked at Apple at JCPenney and they failed miserably, right? This is, I mean, this is one of the biggest problems uh, that we often face, and that is our own personal biases. Mm. I mean, it, here's Ron Johnson, who is uh, you know, an Apple executive who is considered to be a retail god. Mm. You know, he and Steve Jobs together created the Apple Store, most successful retail concept in the last decade or so. And he probably thought he had it all worked out. <laughs> <laughs> J.C. Penney <laughs> hires him as the CEO, and I bet that the mandate was that they wanted him to do for J.C. Penney what he did for Apple mm-hmm. and gave him a huge pay package. Haney goes and he gets started right away, bought new plan, eliminates coupons, clearance racks, does branded boutiques. I mean, all the kinds of things that worked so well in an Apple environment. 17 months later, sales had plunged losses are soaring and Johnson had lost his job. So what went wrong? Well, what Johnson said, you know, I had no time. He charged right ahead. He thought he knew how to do this and he didn't test. So there were no experiments run. This is at least what we were told. And you know what happened? And it's interesting, Johnson sort of reflecting on this. I, I heard a speech later that he actually gave at Harvard Business School. And it's interesting when he, when he thought back and he realized that he probably should have tested But he was in such a hurry, and he called it, interestingly enough, he called it situational arrogance. You know, Mm. when you listen to him, he comes across as actually uh, quite a humble person. Jeff, if you listen to him, you wouldn't consider him to be an arrogant person. Yet, in that particular instance, you know, he thought of himself, himself as arrogant. And so, again, the situational arrogance, what he's saying is all of us are vulnerable here. Mm. You know, we, we think we have figured it all out, but then at the end of the day, we, we get into trouble. I mean, it, it, it's sort of really interesting. I mean, it's Mark Twain had this amazing sort of quote once, I, I absolutely love it. He said, it ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. <laughs> Mark Twain was a genius, I tell you. <laughs> he foresaw all this. Wow. Well, what about culture? Let's talk about what companies need to be prepared to do, uh, Stefan, to begin creating a culture of experimentation and, and maybe uh, include you know, the systems, the tools, the principles, the values that help enable everybody in the company to think and act scientifically. Jeff, what I found is that perhaps the most difficult part sort of to do this is not the tools or the technology. In fact, you know, we can train people, the tools are available. No, it's not that. Mm. I found that it's perhaps culture that's the most difficult. Culture tends to kind of get in the way. It's the behaviors, it's the biases, it's the beliefs that we have that can really slow us down. And I've identified a set of uh, different elements that leaders need to pay attention to when they're trying to experiment or test at large scale. Mm. Let me give you a few examples, Jeff. The first one is cultivating curiosity. You know, you can't experiment or you can't test unless you have an organization that values surprises, Mm. despite, you know, the difficulty of assigning a dollar figure to them. So when you have a curious organization, people will see actually failures, not as costly mistakes, but as opportunities for learning. So we have to cultivate that. So that's the first one. The second, Jeff, is insisting that data trumps opinions. Mm. 
and that's that is so so difficult and <laughs> the reason it's so difficult it's because of human nature yeah. you know we tend to happily accept what we call good results right that confirm our biases but <laughs> then we challenge and thoroughly investigate bad results that go against our assumptions now i'm not saying by the way that every decision uh, that that's made has to follow the data you know but the data informs us sometimes there are some kinds of decisions that we have to make in spite of the data telling us one thing, but at least we know why we're making the decision. So, so that's the second one, really important. And the third one is uh, democratizing experimentation. That means everyone in an organization needs to be empowered to run tests. Mm. And of course, we need to have checks and balances. So we need total transparency. Uh, in organizations that do this well, for example, Booking.com is one of those. Employees also have the right to stop any experiment, not just theirs. So there's kind of a self-regulating mechanisms. The fourth one, of course, be ethically sensitive. Mm. That is, you know, when we're running experiments, we need to make sure that the experiments are ethical and sometimes it's not always clear cut so you need to have a culture that discusses it and then the fifth one Jeff and I think this is really important for leaders is that we have to adopt we have to embrace a different kind of leadership model you know we have to rethink sort of what the role sort of leaders is in these kinds of organizations if in fact most of decisions are made by our experiments Fascinating. Um, well, in the last chapter of uh, Stefan's book, he, he dedicates it to a number of myths associated with experiments and, and how to address those. Uh, Stefan, what are, what are some of the more common ones you'd say? Well, one of the myths that sort of comes up a lot, Jeff, is this whole issue about experimentation versus intuition and judgment. Uh, I was giving a, a lecture and there were, I don't know, probably about 100 or so senior leaders in the room, including CEOs, founders and all that. And I was talking about experimentation and suddenly one of the hands shot up. <laughs> and this was a founder of a very prominent restaurant chain. And he said, stop it, stop it. He said, you know, this whole experimentation sort of stuff that you're sort of talking about is 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 not good for us you know i'm trying to tell my people that they need to be more creative they need to follow their intuition they need to use their judgment and you're killing it all <laughs> and i try to explain to him during the lecture is that it's not one versus the other it's um, mm. intuition and judgment will always play a role in decision making but Intuition and judgment needs experimentation because intuition and judgment often takes you down on the wrong path and experiments will correct you, put you back on the right path. And in fact, when you're running many experiments, you also need a lot of hypotheses that power these experiments. You know, where do you think these hypotheses come from? Well, they come from people and, you know, and they come from qualitative observations. They sometimes come from judgment, from intuition, from, from ideas and so forth. So the two complement each other. It's not one versus the other. So that's a common myth sort of that's out there. Another one I think that we've been reading about, which I think uh, kind of gets it wrong as well. And and this is a question that I received as well in another class. And mm -hmm. someone said, oh, you know, I've just read about that understanding causality is no longer needed in the age of big data and business analytics. You know, we can just run the data. We just run a bunch of regressions and they will tell us what to do. Why waste mm -hmm. time on running experiments? <laughs> 
And in fact, there actually have been articles in prominent business magazines that made exactly that argument. There's a big problem, of course, is that when you're running big data analysis, you get correlation, but correlation is not causation. And as managers, we are interested in causation. We want to know that if we take some action, that it causes some outcome to happen. And there are very many, many nonsensical sort of correlations around you. I'm sure you've seen some of them. You know, for example, there's a very strong correlation between palm size and life expectancy. You know, the smaller your palm, you know, the longer you live. Now, don't look at your hand right now. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a strong correlation. But of course, the underlying causal variable is gender. You know, women on average have smaller palms and they tend to also live longer. So, I mean, there are lots of things out there. And uh, so, causality is needed. Again, correlation is a good starting point. But again, we need experiments that then tell us whether that correlation actually leads to causation. I love the uh, cartoon image in the book of uh, the meeting. And on the screen, you see <laughs> sales climbing and you see uh, shaved heads, the number of shaved heads climbing. Oh, there must be there must be a, a causation issue here. So everybody get out your razors. And <laughs> <laughs> Haven't you been in meetings like this? I've yeah. certainly been in meetings just like that. <laughs> exactly. Well, uh, we, we hinted at this earlier. Talk a bit about how you see what you've written here relates to what's going on around the world today. Well, I mean, I mean, I don't, I don't have to say this. We're, we're, we're seeing here, of course, probably the biggest global crisis that it's certainly in my lifetime, and perhaps the greatest public health crisis in in a hundred years or so since 1918, when we had the great influenza. And one of the things that we've learned now is that testing matters a lot. And in fact, I have, you know, in my career, and I've been writing about this, Jeff, for more than 25 years. I have never seen so many articles on testing and so much interest in testing. I think the public is realizing that testing, the ability to test early and often is absolutely necessary. It's essential to managing this crisis because if you don't know who's infected, if you don't know where the infections are, if you don't know the transmission mechanisms, it's very hard, virtually impossible to manage this crisis. And so testing early and often is, is absolutely key. Scaling the tests, having reliable tests, and reliability is actually very clearly defined in testing. You know, it's defined by you know minimizing both false positives and false negatives. And in fact, false negatives are the most dangerous ones because someone gets tested, they go home, and it's a false negative, and they keep on infecting people. And so the question, of course, then that I had in my mind is sort of why has it taken us so long? And this, I think, gets back to the cultural aspect that I spoke about, Jeff. Mm. I wonder whether our leaders really understood sort of the value of testing even before this crisis hit us. Because the ability to test, just like it's so important in sort of managing innovation and managing companies, it's fully appreciating and signaling to organizations that testing is absolutely sort of key to this. And then mobilizing resources, setting up the right organization, thinking about kind of the decision rights that you need sort of to manage all this. Mm. That is absolutely necessary, whether we're in a crisis or we're not in a crisis. But now we see all of these things amplified. And uh, and I think as a result of that, I, I don't think we really had a culture of testing. In the hospitals, we do. The scientists, by the way, which is interesting, I've been reading a lot about this in the last few weeks. The scientists were ready to go in January, uh, but mm. it's taken us weeks 
and weeks kind of to mobilize this and to fully grasp sort of the importance of to, to, to test to testing at large scale. Finally, I think people, leaders walk up to this and I think they're trying their best now to get this sort of ramped up, but we've lost precious time. And so I think it is a reminder uh, for all of us uh, to, to appreciate testing. So one way, one way I'm encouraged again, because I've been talking about this, writing about this for such a long time now, trying to get sort of the attention of senior leaders. Now I have the attention, but unfortunately, it's come a, a little late. I'm an optimist by nature, Jeff. I'm hoping that we're catching up, but we've got, we've got challenges here, serious, serious challenges ahead of us. For sure. Well, I've got a couple of questions, uh, Stefan, I want to ask Please. you, not directly related to the book. Before I do that, anything else from the book you want to make sure we, we know? One of the things is, I mean, a question that I often get asked is why I wrote the book. Mm. And uh, quite honestly, the reason why I'm writing this book, I'm on a mission. <laughs> I want to educate the world about sort of the power and the value and the importance of experimentation and testing. Mm. That's what I've been trying to do now for more than 25 years. And uh, this is an amazing time right now. In some ways, the technologies and the tools that we have are better than anything that we've ever seen, certainly in my career. And so there's this amazing potential there to fundamentally change how we innovate, how we run companies. And we're going to be seeing a lot more of that. So I wanted to get the message out. I think companies, organizations need to think of experimentation as a core capability, as something that they need to master with all the things that sort of come with it, you know, the cultural aspects of the tools aspects, the, the infrastructure and all the kinds of things. And it's an amazing opportunity, Jeff, here. And the timing is kind of interesting as well. In 1620, Francis Bacon wrote an important book called Novum Organum. It was at the time a new instrument for building and organizing knowledge. We now call it the scientific method. And uh, imagine what this crisis would look like today, Jeff, if we didn't have the scientific method, if we didn't have all these amazing scientists right now working day and night, trying to you know scale tests, trying to find a vaccine, trying to do all these things, I think we'd be lost. I tend to agree with you. <laughs> I want to ask, Stefan, when it comes to, to reading, this being the read to lead, a podcast, particularly reading to learn. Mm -hmm. What do you do to help retain what you read or, or ensure that you implement something you've learned that you want to, uh, to, to take action on? So when I in generally read books or articles and I, I tend to read a lot and I, I tend to read sort of across many different topics, mm. I try to always connect it back to something that I've done or something, some experience that I've had, or perhaps even something that I would like to do. Now, what's also important, I think what I've learned, Jeff, is when you read across many different subject areas, you know, I read a lot of science books, science articles, and you can connect the dots. You start seeing patterns. You mm. know, when you read, you know, a book about neuroscience, for example, you can see the connection between neuroscience and how people behave. I mean, there are lots of sort of amazing things. And, and the more I think you read across sort of different domains, mm. 
the easier it becomes to retain these kinds of things because you start seeing sort of a big picture emerging and you, you develop so-called what I call meta-knowledge, right? You kind of know where the information is and you can always go back and find the details, but you start to see sort of patterns. Mm. And uh, that's important, I, I think, for me personally. You know, I'm interested in a lot of things. In fact, I'm insanely interested in a lot of different <laughs> things. And uh, and I try to pick. And I mean, and by the way, that clearly, I think, comes back into this book here. You know, even though it's positioned as a business book, but you will find that there are a lot of things in the book that actually come from other fields. Right that have influenced that that have things that I've read that have influenced me, you know, that go into, you know, things a little bit like neuroscience and and try to kind of understand what bias really means, you know, uh, bring in the field of statistics a little bit. And so it brings together a lot of different domains. Uh, and it's necessary to write a book like this. And uh, yeah, that's what I do. Well, what's a book or two you've encountered over the course of your career that's uh, maybe left a, a lasting impression on you? Books that you maybe go back to again and again? Yeah, I mean, I think one of uh, the amazing, I think a really amazing book uh, that was written in the last few years is uh, Daniel Kahneman's book, ah. Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow. And it, it uh, the book is just so full of uh, <laughs> of gold. Mm. I mean, every every chapter in the book uh, just contains so much to think about. In fact, this is the kind of book that you need to read a few times. Uh, in fact, I introduced this book. Uh, we had I was working with a company with a senior sort of management team, and we created what we called a, a book club <laughs> mm. and they would pick out a book every three months and they would read the book and we would spend an hour discussing it what it means for their business and i remember that one book when i suggested this book to them we spent almost a whole year on this book wow that means you know they read it again and again and it had implications for everything and how they hire how they incentivize people for marketing and and this was a tech company and what I liked about the book, Jeff, is that this is all based on sound science. You know, I mean, Kahneman got a Nobel Prize for his work, and he took sort of the science and translated it sort of into a book that's uh, very accessible for, for readers as well. There are a lot of books out there, I think, where people sometimes tend to maybe a little bit sort of shoot from the hip. Mm. So this is not a book where it's shooting from the hip. This is all based on Nobel Prize winning research. So that's kind of amazing. So I like these kinds of books, you know, with... Uh, with a low BS factor. <laughs> and you read it and you're reading something and it makes you think and you know it's yeah. true too. I, I admit I own that book. Uh, I have not yet dove into it, but I do own that. But uh, you're, you're encouraging me to, to crack it open. Oh, so. you should. You should. It's a gold mine. It's a gold mine. <laughs> well, uh, let me finish by asking uh, what's ahead for you and your team that you're excited about and able to share. Anything coming up that uh, you're looking forward to? You know, Jeff, when, whenever you whenever you finish writing a book, you start thinking about the next one. <laughs> it's it's just the way we tick, you know, articles. And so I just had a, an article that came out, uh, the Harvard Business Review in the current issue, Building a Culture of Experimentation. It's getting a lot of really great feedback. I'm already working uh, on another article. I'm already thinking about perhaps a new book project on customer experience design. So lots of things are going through my head. And then, of course, given what's going on right now, all that may actually change. Mm. And so so let's see. But Jeff, my, my biggest fear has always been to get bored, never get bored. <laughs> and uh, even now when we're all sitting at home, 
I mean, this is the time maybe to get out things that we never had time to read. Mm. You know, get out a few books. Uh, Amen. Start reading things. Start thinking about sort of what we're doing. I mean, this is also a great time. And with all the anxiety, of course, that's, uh, but it's also a great time to reflect. And sure. uh, yeah, so that's what I'm doing. You know, I'm mm. reading a lot of different things. I'm, I'm as busy as I'm always. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've always been. Well, Stefan's uh, new book, again, is called Experimentation Works. came out last month, The Surprising Power of Business Experiments. Uh, delight talking to you, Stefan. Thank you so much for spending a few uh, minutes with us and sharing your knowledge here on Read to Lead. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I don't know about you, but I've got some homework to do, and that is read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. I promise to dig into it right away. If you don't own that book, well, now at least you know you should. <laughs> I've put a link to that book and the other resources Stefan and I discussed on the blog post created just for this episode. It's the show notes page. You'll find that at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 314 for episode 314. For many of us, our day-to-day habits have changed dramatically, and that makes me even more thankful and appreciative that you're continuing to include carving out time to listen to the Read to Lead podcast. Thank you so much for doing that. If you have comments, suggestions, feedback, or questions about the podcast, I hope you'll email me directly. It's jeff at readtoleadpodcast.com. Next time on the show, we get to say hello to author Kate Krako. She's written Thinking Like a Boss, Uncover and Overcome the Lies Holding You Back from Success. Again, that's next time on the Read to Lead podcast. That does it for this week. I look forward to seeing you next time. Until then, remember, leaders read and readers lead. 